I don't have fear of consequence in Hong Kong, but I do have common sense. And what that common sense tells me, yes, do what you want in Hong Kong. But when you go to China, don't do what you want in China. Ladies and gentlemen, And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 4. I hope all our great listeners in America had an awesome Thanksgiving holiday, and many thanks to all the great folks who sent in congratulatory emails on our 100th episode. We love any reason to have a celebratory edition. But as I said at the end of last week's episode, let's put that in the rearview mirror and kick off the next century of BOA Audio episodes. This week on the program, we are going international once again. We're reaching out 8,000 miles across the globe to discuss Hong Kong and Chinese ufology and exopolitics with our guest Neil Gould, founder of Exopolitics Hong Kong. We're going to be talking about the contemporary and historical ufology scenes in China and Hong Kong, the scantness of famous cases from that part of the world, dangers of exopolitics in China, government, military, media, and public perceptions of the UFO phenomenon, the latest happenings in Hong Kong with regards to spectacular UFO sightings, and the ongoing growth of public awareness to the UFO phenomenon in Hong Kong, as well as the government-overseen UFO studies in China. Plus, of course, tons and tons more. It's a fascinating look from someone on the ground providing a -a one-of-a-kind perspective on a very mysterious realm of global UFO studies, Hong Kong, and Chinese ufology and exopolitics. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Neil Gould, he is the founder and director of Exopolitics Hong Kong. He's also an advisory board member of the Exopolitics Institute, founded by Dr. Michael Sala, Ph.D., in 2005. After Neil's personal experiences that he had with ETs, it has become his mission to be involved with the breaking of the media truth embargo with regards to ETs and their ongoing interaction with the planet Earth. His website is www.exopoliticshongkong.com. Check it out. Before we dive into the interview, I want to give a big thanks to BOA Audio listener Damian Green, Great guy, someone who I had been corresponding with over the summer. I knew he was in Hong Kong, and I said, Damien, get me someone in Hong Kong who can talk ufology, and he directed me towards Neil Gould. So we owe Damien a big thanks for getting Neil Gould here on the program and helping us to break through the language barrier. You'd be very surprised, folks, how hard it is to get someone representing the Asia region of the world on the program because it just does not seem like there's many English speakers over there within the UFO world. But we're working on more international experts and researchers, specifically in the sphere of Asia, to talk to us more about the paranormal world over there. So stay tuned for future episodes with that. Maybe Damien can help us out getting some other guests in Hong Kong for the show. Anyway, big thanks to Damien Green for helping us put together this episode and being our man on the ground in Hong Kong. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. 
This interview was recorded on September 30th, 2008. Neil Gould, talking about Hong Kong and Chinese ufology and exopolitics on BOA Audio, Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio. One of the most popular elements of the show over the past three seasons has been our coverage of the international aspect of esoterica, most notably the UFO phenomenon. And we are delving back into international studies here for season four. We're calling all the way over to Hong Kong to talk with Neil Gould of Exopolitics Hong Kong. And uh, he's got quite a grasp on what the UFO scene is like in Hong Kong. He's good friends with Moon Fong of the Hong Kong UFO Club. So he's going to give us some perspective on what's going on in ufology in the Far East, in Hong Kong, and hopefully some information about what's going on with ufology in China. We're delving into the Pacific Rim of ufology here with Neil Gould. Twelve hours ahead of me right now. It's really great. You're in the morning. I'm in the evening. It's quite a... We're going right across the globe here with this conversation. It's really exciting to have you on the program. Welcome to Banal of America Audio. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Uh, now, before we dive into UFOs and ufology and stuff, let's find out who Neil Gould is. Tell us a little bit about your bio, your background. How did you end up in Hong Kong? And how did you become interested in UFOs? All right. Well, um, the beginning, uh, first of all, I was born in South Africa, in Durban. I left there at the age of 19, and I went to England, was there for 20-odd years, and um, I was involved in business. I was importing from China, suffering all the problems that people do when you import from China. In other words, they send you, you know what you ordered, but you don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> and finally, uh, I came out here and set up uh, my own factory and started producing out here. But uh, you, you're, you're really asking me, you know, how did I get into ufology? Well... The most memorable experience was when I was nine years old in South Africa. I had an encounter with an extraterrestrial as a child. And basically, that incident sort of hung on the wall of my mind like a picture until about, I would say, about uh, four or five years ago when all of a sudden it uh, it suddenly fell off the wall and came to life. And the next thing I knew, uh, I was heavily immersed in ufology, so much so that I had to, if you like, almost seek help. And um, what I did was I contacted the Exopolitics Institute, um, founded by Dr. Michael Thaler, and underwent certification programs in order to try to understand and rationalize everything that had been happening to me. There were occurrences since then, um, sightings, the whole, the whole thing. And that's just basically how I became uh, immersed in ufology in, in, in Hong Kong. Now you've piqued my interest here because I'm interested in this uh, encounter you had with an extraterrestrial. Let's talk a little bit about this. Now, was this when you were a child in South Africa or when you had already gone to England? Well, it's been happening on various occasions. Um, the, the first time, it was started happening when I was very young, actually, but um, I couldn't call the encounters very interesting. It was just when I was nine years old. I had an encounter. I mean, basically, I was terrified of the dark as a child. Parents would always have to sort of open the cupboards and look under the bed before I'd even get into bed, and uh, I wouldn't let them leave me until I was asleep. But one particular evening, um, I woke up, absolute peaceful environment, something very unusual for somebody like me. And the room had this incredible light glow and a feeling of absolute peace. And I was awake, wide awake. First of all, you have to understand, I was living 
in in South Africa and Durban on the in the outer suburbs. So there's no electromagnetic fields, no generators, no nothing that could interfere with the brain. But I, I'd woken up, but I'd kept my eyes closed just simply because I felt so good. And when I opened my eyes, to the right of me was a rather short being, maybe four foot six, something like that, robed, standing looking at me. And what actually happened, there was this, almost this, this um, you know, it's, it's telepathic in a sense, it was actually communicating with me mentally. Um, Mary Rodwell, the well-known hypnotherapist, she sort of explains it, that she's had various people undergo the same thing. And what, what you actually receive is like a knowledge capsule. You sort of downloaded with all sorts of information that comes to life as you go through life. And this is what happened to me. And the strangest thing of all, when my young, when my first son was born, at the age of five years old, he told me a story. He said, you know, Dad, I was taken out of bed by these beings that were robed. I'd never told him the story. They floated me downstairs, and we went into a big light in the garden. So it's obviously something that runs in, in the family. I started to read up, you know, people like Bud Hopkins, David Jacobs, Professor David Jacobs, John Mack, all the abduction experts, and recently I've been looking at the late Carla Turner, and it's just quite amazing everything you read about and the sort of things that happened to me. So this was really the beginning of, of perhaps uh, when this, this picture fell off the wall five years ago, as I call it. It was the beginning of a little bit of a more disturbing but interesting um, understanding of the phenomena. Uh, first of all, I want to tell you that um, this was done by intrusion. We call this intrusion, this um, encounter that I had. But from my point of view, from my perspective, I feel I've benefited because it's, it's awoken me cosmically. So I'm very, very happy about it. It sounds that way, yeah. Well, at least you're making good out of it. and It's not haunting you like uh may have happened earlier in your life or what happens to some people uh, who have had these experiences. Now, you're living in Hong Kong now. I know a lot of people, uh, my American audience, may not be too familiar with uh, the history of Hong Kong. Now, we know that, uh, I know, that it was, I believe, a British colony, I think, for a while, and then it was it was leased by Britain or something like that, and then it was given back to China, but it's sort of like uh, it's got some autonomy there. So I guess talk a little bit about what the situation's like in Hong Kong right now so people can get an understanding of uh, their status in the world. Okay, well, Hong Kong, as you correctly said, was a British colony. I mean, they used to launch all sorts of attacks from here, you know, going back years, uh, the Opium Wars were fought in China. You know, the British, the big, all the big companies here made their money out of peddling opium and they're basically incapacitating the Chinese, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but in 1997, uh, Britain decided to give, China, give Hong Kong back to China. Um, at that point, many, many Chinese decided to leave. They were afraid. They thought the mainland would sort of come in and terrorize the place. But, you know, it wasn't that long after Tiananmen Square, the massacre that took place. So people were afraid. But in actual fact, um, the minute the handover occurred, okay, I know we saw that some of the Chinese sort of crossing the border in military trucks and heading for barracks in Hong Kong, but the place did not change. In fact, the place prospered. And uh, the only thing that really changed, uh, not, not from the European point of view, but from the Chinese perspective, was the educational system. They had to learn Mandarin. This is a Cantonese territory, basically. And um, if anything, I think it's, it's been very, very good, very, very good for Hong Kong. We're basically part of China. We have autonomy. Um, we, we have easier access to working with China. And the economy started to grow. I mean, of course, we've had the financial crisis. We've had SARS. We've had a lot of problems, and we've got this 
financial um, crisis that's occurring right at the moment, but we're not as badly affected as, let's say, you guys are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> but it's still it's coming because basically we have 1.2 billion Chinese across the border. Now, if there was a downturn in production business in China of 10%, you can be sure it's going to put 20 million people on the street out of work. Now, yeah. 20 million people in China is a, a, quite a dangerous um, number because it's the beginning, what we call, you know, the beginning of, you know, let's say instability. And that's where Chinese don't like things, we call this um, political mass. And that brings a new ufology, you see. So um, you, you can perhaps understand why ufology is tolerated, providing it's controlled. Because the last thing the Chinese want is any kind of group getting together that has a belief that it can become a political power. Now, you say that Hong Kong has autonomy, but are they, is it like independently ruled? Or is because, uh, you know, when the Olympics was going on and all that, before everyone was getting all worked up about China and the human rights and stuff, and people kind of worried about censorship and that kind of thing, is it, is it, like, is it like that in Hong Kong too? Or, or are you guys pretty much, you know, separate from the, uh, the rule of the, of the Chinese? Well, we're pretty much separate. We, we, we pretty much separate. We have our own legislative council. And, uh, of course, the guys at the top, you know, have to be careful to point at very, very high levels of what they do and what they say. And they would normally seek approval. I mean, this is just pure uh, courtesy, if you like, before they enter into any major commitments. I mean, China's always been there to help. And they've been, you know, very, very helpful when we had problems. You know, when the tourist industry started to dry up during SARS, uh, after SARS, when that happened, um, business was down. The Chinese allowed more of their people to come into Hong Kong as tourists. So they turned on the tap of money and, of course, brought prosperity prosperity very quickly to Hong Kong. And Hong Kong sort of benefited from it, you see. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think Deng Xiaoping, you know, I think he, they, they, they made this agreement um, when they handed Hong Kong back to China. Basically, for 50 years, China can't meddle with the political system. And I think he, he was quite clever, old Deng, because I think he thought Hong Kong would change China, not China would change Hong Kong. And in actual fact, this was it's ringing true, because China is modernizing under the, um, you call it the capitalist system, if you like. It's learning all the ways, rules of law. There are many, many changes going on across there. Yeah, so it's turned out to be a good thing for China in the long run, hopefully. Yeah. All right, now let's dive into the UFO phenomenon. I'm going to uh, couch these in, in reference to Hong Kong, but feel free to sort of throw in China if you like. I'm, I'm uh, presuming that even though uh, they're separate entities, that there's at least some crossover as far as uh, the UFO phenomenon goes. And if not, you can, of course, uh, extrapolate on that. Let's start out with the history of the UFO phenomenon in Hong Kong and China. It's believed in some circles that this has gone on for millennia, uh, you know, since the beginning of mankind. Uh, how far back do we know of UFO sightings and the like in, in that area of the world? Well, in terms of China, we do know about sort of artifacts that were found. I think they're called the Droper Stones. I'm not a, a complete expert in the subject, but these Droper Stones were shaped like flying saucers. And uh, perhaps uh, it, it appears that these um, particular stones were placed in the cave some 10,000 years ago, where apparently a craft, it was a little Roswell situation that took place then. Various archaeologists found the stones, incidentally, they've totally disappeared. Huh. But, um, they've been catalogued and scripted, and um, they are absolutely fact. You can actually Google this on the Internet, and you'll find out all about them. 
So the Dropers were apparently, some people believe they were the, was where the Chinese came from. I can't really substantiate that. But um, in actual fact, you know, the, you always hear about Chinese talking of dragons and serpents. Well, you know, these dragons and serpents have come about because of what people have seen in the sky. So uh, people have been seeing aerial phenomena for thousands of years in China. Now, I've actually had a look at some very, very old pictures of Shanghai, and a few of them came up, a couple of people standing in the street with their long, you know, ponytails and their robes. So it probably dates the pictures around 1910, 1915, where quite clearly they're all looking at a definite metallic disc, which is probably hovering at about six, 700 feet. It's a bit sort of triangulated the, the distance the people were from the camera and the distance the, the people were behind them from the buildings. So it appears that um, they've been watching these things for years. In China today, basically, ufology is viewed more of a science rather than a secret. But um, there are UFO clubs in every single province in China. Now, as I said to you, China does not want anybody to politicize or give any group political mass, like the Falun Gong. I'm sure you've heard of these peaceful group that come and they protest. Basically, they sort of terrorize in China. In fact, they're thrown out, they're jailed, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. They don't want anybody to get political mass, anybody that can dilute any of the, the government power. So these groups, they are registered and they are private, but there's no you know, great gatherings and such. Every now and then they'll have a, a, a UFO conference, but you never ever see anything high profile within these UFO groups. Now, the man at the top of the UFO umbrella is a guy called Professor Sun Shili. He's very well known to the worldwide UFO fraternity. But he is, you know, he is, well, I call him he's a figurehead. He only tells you um, anything before he's had clearance himself. So, you know, the, some very famous, uh, you know, cases in China that have happened uh, with as far as ET interactions with humans. I mean, for example, the, I think the most famous one is the case of Guo Menjiao. You know, he's a guy who was a, basically he's a plantation worker. And um, the old story, um, a craft came down in the field, picked him up. He had sex with a, with a big woman. And... Um, he was given all the normal spiritual warnings of what's to come. I'm not quite sure why the alien supposedly made love with him. But, um, <laughs> you know, he sort of, this was, this was during the Cultural Revolution. And during the Cultural Revolution, you had to be in, in your canton. You could not be in a different province. Yet this particular craft dropped him in a different province. So he had to explain exactly, you know, how he ended up, you know, sort of miles and miles away from where he was picked up. So this case is catalogued. Now, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've had many occasions tried to uh, get to speak with Chinese contactees. And typically what happens is you'll get a letter and you'll open the letter and you'll get the beginning of the story and then you'll get to a point where they start to ask for money. So, um, and they'll tell you how poor they are and how they need money for this and need money for that. And, you know, quite frankly, when you get that kind of letter, it's not going to be easy to, to know whether you're going to believe the rest of the story. Yeah. So really, um, in actual fact, I don't really get too involved in China for, for, for a few reasons. One, the credibility. It's very, very difficult to discern between what's true and what's not true. That's the, the first thing. I mean, yes, you see uh, on, on TV, you know, 
newsreels of craft flying over China. Yes, that's true. Um, I prefer really to stay within the uh, domain of Hong Kong because if I really got heavily involved in China, I might be viewed as, you know, maybe some kind of dissident at some point because the word exopolitics, the last word, politics, you see, yes. it might be misconstrued and suddenly, you know, exopolitics is politics. And what is politics? Somebody wants to overthrow. Well, that's not true. If anything, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm for stopping America attacking China and throwing propaganda at China all the time, you know? Yeah. So um, my activities are quite heavy in Hong Kong. I'm, I'm heavily involved in, in, in this kind of thing in Hong Kong. So much so that, uh, sad to say, and I have to tell you, that your NSA, your people in the States are interfering here. They've been interfering in what I've been doing as well. And um, it just goes to show how the United States military really want to keep the lid on the reality of what exactly what's going on in terms of the extraterrestrial presence and interaction with the planet Earth. I gave a lecture um, in Mong Kok on the, in the New Territories uh, one day, and we put out the time as being 2 o'clock, and then we changed, we put that out on the email and on the website, and then we changed the time, but I didn't do it on the email the website, I did it through mobile phones to all the participants. And, yet, and I arrived there early. When I got there, there was this European lady. She was there ahead of everybody else. She'd obviously picked this up off the website. But the point is that throughout the lecture, throughout the day, taking of photos, I have photos of her clearly covering her face, bending down behind the chairs, hiding away, and just before the end of the lecture, she disappeared. Wow. So there's, there's one example. And I took the pictures to a particular expert that I know on body language. And he just says, I mean, this person just didn't want to be seen, didn't want to be photographed. So that's the first thing. Now, the second thing, um, we, myself, with, uh, with you say, Moon Fong of the, um, Moon Fong is the chairwoman. I'll tell you a little bit of history about her. Um, the, the UFO Club of Hong Kong is the social side, and the Institute of Ufology is the academic side. The Institute of Ufology has associate professor from the Hong Kong University. You have PhDs. And basically what Moon does on the, on the social side is she gathers people around and has events and basically to try to educate as many of them as possible on the UFO phenomena. Now Moon was in the, um, the place called the city, Pyramid City in, in South America, outside, outside Mexico City. And she was there with the well-known contactee. I think you've heard of him, Sixto Paz. And um, while while she was with him, she saw a daylight metallic disc, and it basically changed her life. It was 11, 11 years ago. She came back to Hong Kong and she set up the UFO club. And they, the problem is what they suffer from is, is a language barrier. So they don't really understand anything other than a flying saucer and aliens and maybe Billy Myers. I mean, that's probably the full extent of, of, of the information they have with perhaps a little bit of Lisa Royale, the channeler. But, you know, everyday events, I mean, me being part of Exit Politics World Network, you know, 50, 50 emails a day with uh, real-time news that goes on all day, every day. Mm -hmm. So we're really in the picture. So, you know, myself being here and working with them has helped a lot, so much so that they decided to get their academics and a group of them invited myself, and we invited Mary Rodwell. Do you know Mary Rodwell? Uh, the name does ring a bell, yeah. In Australia. She's amazing, ET and human transformation, one of the most amazing women you'll ever meet. And basically, the, they persuaded the Hong Kong University to set up an educational course, part of the fourth-year degree 
program to do these lectures on, on exopolitics and, and ufology. And everything was set up and uh, invited Mary and great. Everything was great. Preparing our lectures and I was working with all the boys and the girls and making sure that everything was nice and fluent and presentable and, you know, they were looking over, we were looking over each other's work. And on the 16th of September was kickoff day. We got confirmation from the university and uh, we notified the public because there were seats for the public. Students enrolled. It was great. On the 16th of September, they did not open the doors. The doors were shut. They did not tell anybody. They did not warn anybody. And feeble excuses were coming out. Oh, you know, you know, it was coming to the, the, the dean of this faculty said you shouldn't call it science. And then the story changes something else, and it changes something else. And basically, the whole program got shut down. This is just, you know, like a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Now, this is, to me, it stinks. This is typical, because all these institutions, at the end of the day, all around the world, they're all government-funded. And governments, you know, <laughs> they're all influenced by the NSA. And um, this program was sort of shut down. Now, it's very, very, very simple what's going to happen now. Basically, this is an interference in, in students' academic freedom. Now, I can tell you now that none of us are going to rest with this situation. It'll either, one of two things will happen. We'll either bring it onto the streets. We have all the press behind us, but we're giving them one month's grace to get their act together and to move away from any external influence on, on this particular matter. And secondly, at the end of the day, we could circularize everybody and tell everybody, look, you know, your university doesn't want you to know the truth. They want to teach you a load of garbage. They want to teach you the old ways. They're being influenced by external forces. You know, either you're a sovereign nation or you're not. You're either puppets. Make up your mind. If you want to come and listen, we'll go and hire another hall. We'll do our lectures over there. We'll tell you the truth about the extraterrestrial presence on this earth. Huh. So, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you're quite surprised that there's so much going on out here, you know. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds rather interesting. Now, we'll confine uh, the, the area of discussion to Hong Kong, since you, since you said that's probably where you're, where you're most uh, comfortable yeah. and, and familiar. So let's talk about uh, maybe some key cases or noteworthy trends, you know, have there been flaps in Hong Kong or specific key cases that you think people might be interested in. Uh, that yeah. have happened in Hong Kong. Well, you know, if you if you think the Phoenix Lights was such a great, incredible occurrence, look, of course it was. Okay, the Phoenix Lights, you know about that. Mm -hmm. In in the year 2000, just by the millennium, you know, quite a few people knew that I was always slanted towards ufology, and I got a call one night from the governor of the Jewish Day School in Hong Kong, and he said to me, Neil, he said, look, I'm 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 calling you just to make a big thing about this, but. Uh, I just want to tell you, I was out on, on the boat last night with a few other people from the community. And, you know, we saw these like, well, they were like, you know, it, it was like V-shaped. It was like lights, but uh, there was no body. Uh, but then, you know, it was it was huge, you know, 800 to 1,000 meters wide. But, you know, then there was no sound. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, don't quite understand what this is. So immediately I, I knew there was something non-terrestrial taking place here. So I said to him, look... Why don't you tell me exactly what happened? I'll come and see you because um, you called me the next day. I said, oh, I said, what time can I come and see you? He said, look, why don't you come at about 7 o'clock? I'm on the Kowloon side. I'm working. I have a vessel coming in from South Africa with oranges, and we'll be unloading the freighter. 
and you come over there and I'll try and explain the whole thing to you. So, of course, I made my way across to the Kowloon side, and I arrived there, and um, I saw he was heading back towards me. He was talking to the captain of the of the vessel that chartered. Uh, the, the, the captain was a, a Polish captain, and I walked up the gangplank, and as soon as he felt the gangplank uh, bouncing, my colleague, the governor of the school, turned around to me and said, Hi, hi, Neil, hi. Um, how's things? I said, fine. He said, okay, I'm going to tell you exactly where where we saw these things. So you must remember on the mainland side, on the Kowloon side, you're facing Hong Kong Island. You're facing all those tall skyscrapers mm -hmm. that you see on the horizon, the well-known site. So I said, yes, well, what happened? He said, well, you know, it came in from the, the western side and they headed uh, into the sky and uh, over some of the buildings. And then just then, the captain started talking about something to the ship. And he turned his back on me and he's talking to the captain. And uh, the conversation went on for maybe three or four minutes. And I turned around, looked at the horizon, and as I turned around to look at the horizon, from the west came four delta-shaped, V-shaped, as he said, 800 meters, 1,000 meters at least in size, of delta-shaped uh, craft. Um, you could not see necessarily a solid body, but each sphere must have been at least 40 or 50 feet. Now, again, we talk about triangulation. These... I tapped him on the shoulder and said, look, look, look. He said, yes, that's them, that's them, exactly, look. They flew in and they headed towards one of the buildings called the IFC building. I think it's the International Finance Center. Finance Center. Mm -hmm. There's two now. There's an IFC 1 and an IFC 2. The IFC 1 was the shorter one, but they had this beam of light that shined straight up into the sky. So I was able to sort of work out the height, which would be about, uh, probably about eight, 900 feet in altitude, and at least each wing, four to 500 meters, but V-shaped backwards. And these these balls, these, well, you, you can call them orbs, but it's, it's a V formation, just like you saw in the Phoenix Lights, were flying silently. They were burning gold, brilliant gold white. Difficult to explain. There's no such color to explain it. And they were circling at 25, maybe 20 kilometers an hour, high above the sky, circling slowly around this beam of light. We watched this for two hours. We had 20 or 30 Chinese workers who were working on the boat. They were looking at it, but they were totally disinterested. <laughs> it was the most incredible thing. Yeah, 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 they look and they look away. Well, I said, what, what, what do you think those are? Oh, yeah, dragons, dragons. And then they look away. And, uh, you know, there was just no way you could enter into any sort of conversation with them. Now, the worst thing is, I arrived there, no camera. <laughs> <laughs> which is typical. And, you know, we're watching this for three hours, three, four hours maybe. I mean, it was just absolutely amazing. And you just would normally think the whole of Hong Kong has seen this, and you're going to see about this in the, in the TV tonight, you know? Yeah. So this was the beginning of, of that particular um, flat, because a few weeks later, after that, I was uh, at somebody's um, uh, anniversary party with my son as well. We looked out the window. And again, we started, but not this time, not orbs, but, you know, disc-shaped craft were flying over Hong Kong. They were flying from the from the, the Kowloon side, slowly over the buildings in a bright white arc welder's light. We're flying overhead. So we saw those. Now, just um, in, in September 2007, on, on the, the eve of Rosh Hashanah, okay, which, is, which was yesterday, 2008, the Jewish New Year, we... I was with, because at this stage, you can imagine with everything that I, that's happened to me as, as a child and seeing, seeing these beings and seeing this particular UFO flap, um, during the millennium, 
you know, my family and, and friends, you know, they it got to the point where, yes, they were sort of giving me lip service, accommodating me, yeah, 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 but there was a little bit of doubt, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just the way it is. But on the last, on on in September 2007, my family were here, and we're all at home together, and a skeptic who is a very, very top guy in a very, very famous, one of the top five accountancy company, accountancy uh companies, right? Mm -hmm. He was here with his wife and we're sitting on the balcony uh, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, out of absolutely nowhere, this orange box appeared to me. I saw it first and I looked at it. Everybody was there and I couldn't say anything because, you know, you, you watch, you're absorbed in something. You, you're quite shocked. And then it opened up into an orange hue and out of it came this huge boomerang solid wing with the same kind of lights. And I screamed to everybody. They're all on the balcony anyway. So they all turned around, all looked up, and everybody saw it. And I would say to you, that's my epiphany. You know, that, that was the day I was declared sane. You know, <laughs> when you've got a top, a top accountant from the council, a skeptic, when you've got your, your, your kids, your wife, everybody on the balcony, and you all see it, then it's incredible. Yeah, that must have been a good now, feeling. <laughs> now I'm going to tell you something even more eerie, even okay. more strange. Last night was Rosh Hashanah again, right? Mm -hmm. Two nights ago, it was Roshan again. We were on the balcony again. This time, my son from London came here. And he, you know, he also wanted to see this. He'd heard all about it. And we looked on the balcony again, and the same damn thing happened, except it was wishbone shaped. So, you know, we're reeling over that, over the sighting from the other night still. Wow. Now, I'm only telling you now about my sightings. Now, I run a newsletter, free newsletter here in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Last, about 10 or 12 days ago, I started to get calls from people on the new territories over Ma On Shan, the area Ma On Shan. People seeing the silent, same again, big boomerang, V-shaped, delta-shaped craft flying over Ma On Shan and staying in the same period. So, staying in the same, sorry, position. And if I, you know, I just send out emails back to people, have you got a photograph? Have you got a photograph? People would send me sort of blurry images on cell phones. But one particular person finally got the shot. And it's very, very clear. It's a big V-shaped craft. And I've got the shot, and it'll be in my next newsletter, so I'll just send it out to everybody. So, yes, we have a lot of UFO activity going on over Hong Kong. So much so that you can see on my website, if you look at my website uh, under the button HK Media, uh, there is a documentary done to me by ATV in Hong Kong. They even did a documentary. The... Um, Hong Kong Observatory, Weather Observatory, they get 40 sightings a year of unidentified flying objects. Depending on who you speak to at the observatory, some people will try and debunk it because they themselves, Chinese, don't want to feel stupid telling you this. But if you go to them privately and talk to them, they will tell you. They will tell you about these strange things flying over Hong Kong all the time. And some of these people have seen them. Now, one of the, one of the, the, the most famous reports that they had, I live in Pok Phulam, which is on the west side of Hong Kong Island, there's um, a little area down here, just next door to me here, called Waifu. It's a Waifu estate, which is like a government estate with sort of government-assisted property and that kind of thing. Yeah. A craft of the size of six football fields wow. in the Hong Kong Observatory, okay? It's there in black and white. Flew silently over the Waifu estate. Six football fields. Wow. Right? No particular shape. It was huge. It could have been square. It could have been anything. I don't. There's, nobody can give an exact description except people are just absolutely flabbergasted. This thing flew 
over the estate and then disappeared into the distance. Now, if you go into Google and you just sort of Google UFO Hong Kong, UFO Hong Kong, you will also see a light ship, which is in the shape of a, of a diamond, a gold prism, that hovered over Repulse Bay for a long time. And you see boats sailing past it, and it's there, it's on video, it's caught. So we have, I would say, more than our fair share of, of unidentified flying objects, and they're obviously non-terrestrial, yeah. the way some of these things behave. So this is a very, very exciting place to be, and I can tell you now we're in very, very exciting times. Yeah, it sounds like you guys are in the midst of a pretty serious flap. Now, yeah. aside from uh, the stuff that you've seen post-2000, as far as the history of Hong Kong goes, you know, uh, here in America we do have a, our share of notable sightings uh, over the last few years, you know, uh, over the last few decades, excuse me, you know, from yeah. from the Roswell thing and the Kenneth Arnold and the Battle of L.A., the lights over D.C., uh, the list goes on and on, you know, up until uh, the Phoenix Lights and, and this past year's Stephenville incident. What about in the history of Hong Kong? Do they have infamous, I guess you could say, UFO sightings? No, that... you've, got, you've got to understand the culture here. Mm -hmm. You really have to understand the culture here. If you if you drove your car and you came to a traffic light and you said, how do I get to so-and-so? The guy will give you an answer, whether he knows or whether he doesn't know. Because they have their face. They have to keep their face. They don't want to let you down. Equally... Nobody wants to be the first one to stand up to say, say that he saw something. You see, this is what one of my missions are, what I feel is one of my missions here, is to try to let people understand that what you see in the sky, do not be afraid to talk about. You know, tell everybody about it. You know, let this become part of something that we're all experiencing and living. So there's no major cases that you could go and look up about a particular incident in Hong Kong. All I can say is thank God for video cameras because people have been filming them and putting them on YouTube and Google. Yeah. But other than that, nobody will say anything. But I'll tell you another, another really weird experience. I met this chap in the, in the UFO club. He's a very sort of quiet sort of guy. And, you know, he's telling, he's telling me, oh, he says, yeah, I see aliens all the time. You know, come into my room. I tell him, go away. I don't want you. You know, the guy's a bit lonely. You know, maybe a little bit prone to you know, exaggeration, whatever. Yeah. And he's, he works, well, his family have a business in the Kodak, as we call the Kodak building. And I went up to see him because he's basically a nice guy. I'm trying to arrange the world's largest UFO conference in Hong Kong, and he would be quite, quite helpful. And he's telling me, we're looking out the window, and we're looking over the harbor, and it looks beautiful. And he says to me, oh, he says, you know, sometimes I look out the window and I see things. I said, oh, okay, well, it's quite possible because, you know, I, I look out the window and I've, I've seen things. He said, but this time he said, you know, I saw a big, like a big tube, like a cigar tube. He said it was hundreds of feet and it came past my window. So, okay, I said, fine, that's interesting. Anyway, a, a few weeks later, I was looking through the, you know, the, like the MUFON and, and QFOS and all these reports that you find on the Internet that people have, have catalogued. Mm -hmm. And somebody who was driving not far from the Kodak building, and again, didn't have a camera, but what they did was they photographed in the report the Kodak building, and they did a graphic, they did a graphic, you know, drawing yeah. of this damn cigar going past the Kodak building. <laughs> wow. So, you know, there are many, many, many strange things going on over here. People are reluctant to report, as you know, you're talking about your Kenneth Arnolds and your... Your, your major Kehoe and uh, all the players in in in, uh, in America you see with Stephenville, uh, people, um, you know, Angelia Joyner trying to 
help reporters what's going on and, uh, and they dismiss it from, from their, from a job. People are ridiculed. People are uh, dealt with it pretty severely. Well, people don't like to be ridiculed out here in Hong Kong. You know, face is very, very important. Yeah. And this is just the way it is. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, you were telling me about how Moon Fong had this experience 11 years ago, and then she came back to Hong Kong and formed the Hong Kong UFO Club. Let's talk a little bit about organized UFO studies in Hong Kong. Was that the first uh, such group dedicated to studying UFOs? Because, as you said, it seems like uh, in the decades prior to, you know, the last 10 years, that ufology wasn't hadn't really begun to pick up steam in Hong Kong, if at all. Correct. So uh, was that the first group, or were there any previous organizations prior to Moon Fong? No, there was nobody, there was nothing, nothing organized at all. At all. I mean, she's done a good job by pulling people together and, you know, arranging events. They brought Stanton Friedman over. They've brought uh, various other people over. They've tried to get Lisa Royale, but she's quite fully booked. I mean, they're the only people, really, who have ever done anything in terms of ufology. And, 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 and you know, I'm so happy that they're here because, you see, as a Westerner, first of all, I don't speak Chinese. And, you know, I'm sort of limited to what I can do. But, you know, they're not. there's no animosity with them. They just so welcoming to me. They pull me into all the radio programs. They pull me into all the lectures. They pull me into all sorts of stuff. And I'm actually making the contribution, you know, as well. And, I, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm very, very happy to do that because they're doing such a great job. And if I can help make it better, why not, you know? Okay. And we are. We are making a mark here. It does sound like you guys are making some great progress. Now, I'm going to take you back into China, and I apologize That's for okay. that, but I do okay. want to know about the organized UFO studies in China. Now, you talked about how it is nowadays, and I know there's been a lot of upheaval in China, um, you know, over uh, over millennia or over how long, however long China's been there. There's always sort of been a tumultuous situation, but how long has uh, UFO studies in China been going on? Well, you know, I don't have any firm data on that, but UFO studies was was always in the scientific realm anyway, just like it was in, in you know in Russia in the Russian times in and out, the government allowed it, and they just disallowed it, and then it went underground, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's a similar thing in China. It was allowed, and it went underground simply because, you know, many, many years ago, behind the scenes, all the leaders of the world uh, were involved in, um, you know, being briefed, if you like, on the extraterrestrial issue. And don't forget one thing. Please don't forget one thing. America is the guardian to the gateway of space. America is the guardian to the gateway of you having a nuclear reactor in your country or, or not being allowed to have one. Mm -hmm. You've got to be a, a member of the American club, like India, you know. Yeah. You've, got to, you've got to please America, you've got to kiss America's backside, and then you get in and you're part of the nuclear club, you can have a nuclear reactor. And, and, and if you're really, really a good boy, you can go into space, because, you know, the Americans could take you out in two seconds. So you have to understand that all these countries that are up in space today, they're all part of the club. They all cooperate at a very, very high military level. And in China, you can't penetrate that. You cannot get past that front door of the space program. That, that, that would really be viewed as something very, very serious if you ever did try to do that. Now, we all know, just listening to people like you know Richard Hoagland, for example, or looking at some of the pictures um, that we see um, on Mars and on the moon of the anomalies that, that exist up there, the ruins on, on the moon, for example, uh, the mining equipment that's there. Um, Hoagland identified a, a, a kind of a android head that's lying on the floor. You know, 
we know the testimony from the disclosure project of Carl Wolf, when he says, Sergeant Carl Wolf, when he went over to NASA as an engineer to fix something, he was watching them uh, doctoring and airbrushing out these anomalies that exist on the moon, you know, mm -hmm. towers and, and, and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, we know, we know there are things on the moon, yet the Japanese They've been flying around the moon and photographed it. The Indians have been flying on the moon, around the moon photographing it. And so have the Chinese. Yet nobody will talk about what they've seen on the moon. You see? Yeah. So you, you, you can see exactly what's going on at the very, very top. Everybody is part of this club and they're keeping, well, they're treating us all like mushrooms, aren't they? They keep us in the dark and they shovel manure on us every now and then, you know? That's for sure. Now, what about China now? They're going into space, so you're saying that they're part of the, the club now, if you will. Absolutely. If they were not part of the club, they would not even be able to get off the ground. Interesting. Okay. You've talked about uh, some of these UFO sightings you've had and, and the, the UFO flaps in the last few years. Hmm. Now, a lot of people here in America subscribe to the idea, whether they're skeptics of UFOs or not, um, you know, I, I take the belief of, you know, the all of the above idea as far as UFOs go, you know. Uh, they could be aliens, some of them are black projects, some of them are, you know, misidentifications, some of them are interdimensional stuff, you know. So I guess the, the question I'm heading towards here is, since you guys are so close to China, what are the odds or what do you think of the idea that maybe some of these UFO sightings are Chinese military projects that, that you're seeing? You know, you, if, if we were looking at military projects, they'd probably be more likely American than, than Chinese because basically when you have that kind of technology that the Americans have or let's, let's say the military have, you can go anywhere at any time and do anything you want. And I don't believe that they would allow the other countries to have such advanced technology. Um, the, the difference with people like myself, many people like myself, is that when you've actually had the extraterrestrial experience yourself, you know, there's nothing that's going to shake your view that, you know, if, if you've seen, if you've seen certain beings and you've studied the subject very deeply, uh, it's, it's, to us it's very obvious that much of what you see is not terrestrial and, and the possibility exists. I mean, even uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell said, that much of the stuff that you do see flying around that is black ops is retro-engineered from, you know, from, from captured craft. I mean, all you've got to do is read about Clifford Stone, Sergeant Clifford Stone, another disclosure project witness. He was on crash retrievals. You know, you just read, uh, read or watch the video on YouTube about uh, Adair, the young uh, brainchild who was also at Area 51, similar to Lazar, and he was involved in trying to retro-engineer some kind of an, an engine that was biosyncratic. In other words, you know, you, 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 it would react to thought. When you didn't feel good, it made certain ripples on the surface. And uh, and, and so you have it, you know. Okay, so you're, so you're saying you're not, you're not a big believer in the black ops. No, I'm a believer of, in both. I, I think both things are happening. I've just come back from bringing suppressed, suppressed technology for taking energy out of water. Okay, mm -hmm. a particular manufacturer in America was having problems, his supply lines were being stopped, and he couldn't make this particular product. So I flew over and brought all the technology to China. I can tell you now, it's safely sitting in China. Uh, I'm going to say China, it might be Cambodia, it might be Vietnam, and nobody, I won't tell you exactly where it is. <laughs> but, but it's, let's, let's put it this way, I'll just use the word China. Okay. This technology is safely in China, it is being retro-engineered, it is being um, fixed up. The technology is all there. Electronics are being put in place. And this basically extracts energy from water. And you can run your car. Well, you can't run the total car from it, but you can run a great deal of your car. 
using the hydroxy gas. Now, I know there are many, many people who have been using this technology. It was suppressed in the 1930s, but nobody has really understood just how dangerous this technology is. You know, the hydroxy gas, it's explosive. But the technology that I'm talking about now is, is the safety systems that overcome all the problems that would have made this, this product uh, quite dangerous. But, okay, that's, that's just one thing. But now let me tell you another thing. When, on the way back, I stopped off in L.A., and I went to stay with a colleague of mine, and he's also extremely cosmically minded. And at 4.30 in the afternoon outside his place in, in the San Fernando Valley, if you look up in the sky, 4.30 to 5.30, you will see craft flying around. Now, he's just sent me some photos. They're not very, very clear because he doesn't have a, tele, a telephoto lens. But if any of your listeners are interested to go down there, we urgently need somebody with a telescopic lens to go and video these craft and take pictures. And I've seen three of them. So I can assure you they're there. So if I get emails from anybody, I can then send the um, telephone number of this young lad. His name is Jason Friend. And he'll be most pleased to take you there at 4.30 and show you exactly what's flying in the sky. One of them looks like a bicycle pedal that sort of rotates. And a couple of the others are metallic disc shape. Black ops or, or extraterrestrial, I, I can't tell you. There you go, yeah. But you can certainly take photos of these, and it's in L.A. All right, well, people can get a hold of you through exopoliticshongkong.com, so that's how they can find you. Yes. Okay, now uh, let's talk a little bit about the Hong Kong government with regards to UFOs. Here in America, we had uh, Project Blue Book, and over in the U.K., they have uh, the Ministry of Defense UFO desk that Nick Pope is uh, so well yep. known for being associated with. Has there ever been any sort of official study or desk, if you will, for lack of a better term, regarding UFOs within the Hong Kong government? Anything we have here is Project Checkbook. <laughs> That's the nature of Hong Kong, Project Checkbook. You what know, is, it, what it, does that it, mean? It just means that the people here only care about money. Uh, very sad. There, is no, there are no records of, of any investigations into this kind of phenomenon. Nobody's... Nobody cares about it. You've got to understand, you know, if you t take from the Western perspective, first of all, or from the foreigner perspective, you know, people are sent, big, big companies send only their best people to Hong Kong to come and drive their businesses, their banking, their investments, or their manufacturing. And these people are highly focused on money. That's what Hong Kong is. It's a money-generating place. Mm -hmm. They come here, they, they set up the, 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 the conduits into China, and that's all they're focused on. The government is totally focused on money. There is no, you know, there's no real interest for anybody. There's no real army as such in Hong Kong. I mean, we have an army, but it's not, it's just not organized as, as, as you think it is, you know? Yeah. There's nothing here that would pay anybody to start spending time investigating uh, any UFO phenomena. Hong Kong is all about return to square foot. It's a small territory. You know, you live in, a, in, a, in, a, in an apartment, your rents are anywhere between 6,000 U.S. dollars a month, you know, up to 20,000 U.S. dollars a month. And people have to spend their time making sure that they can cover those costs. Yeah. And, and that's why you just don't have it. You know, it's, 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 ufology is a military issue. There's no, there's no scientist here even interested in it. It's very, very difficult. The only ones that are are, are, are the, the, the few of them in the Institute of Ufology. And look at that. They're being now chucked out of the, of the, uh, the, the, the lectures we're supposed to hold at the university. Nobody's, they're not interested. Yeah, that is strange. Now, you say that, that it's a military issue. Does the military there look at the UFO phenomenon at all, as far as you know? No, they don't. They definitely don't. 
in Hong Kong. No, they don't. Absolutely sure of that. Nobody and cares. And when I find her, I will marry her. Never! And she thinks I will be happy and my curse will be lifted. Go off and rule the universe from beyond the grave. Indeed! You're listening to Banal of America Audio. They're China's problem now. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the Chinese element to uh, the UFO phenomenon in the sense of you said that the groups are all sort of registered with the government and everything like that. Do you have any idea sort of what sort of things that the groups do, you know, collect cases or discuss these things and try and extrapolate what's going on? And is there any cooperation from the government as far as information from the Chinese government to the UFO groups? No. It's very, sadly, you know, first of all, it's a very insulated place, China. Yeah. Even these UFO groups within the different provinces, you know, are really insulated. They try their best to attend these UFO conferences. As I said to you, as soon as something, you know, becomes political mass, uh, you know, the Chinese themselves know already, you know, when when, when something's going to become political mass, and they'd rather avoid it. Yeah. So it's really about research. Some of the people who can speak English will will try and get information through the internet, and they talk amongst themselves, and uh, they'll have they'll have lectures amongst themselves. But it's very very sad. The the the, the, the newest of all the um, UFO groups is the one in the province of Dalian, where they've got that very very modern city. That's where Stanton Friedman came to give a lecture at the university. Mm-hmm. So they, it's under a guy called uh, Zhang Jinping, actually. Uh, he's very, very progressive. He's probably the most progressive up-and-coming guy in China. Um, he is, a few years ago, had a UFO conference, and people from Australia came and attracted a couple of people from around the world. Uh, people like your Dr. Uh, C.B. Scott Jones in, in the States, the ex-naval military intelligence guy, head of the Peace Room, Peace and Space, in his uh, intelligence days, uh, he, he was telling me that he'd often talk to the Chinese, and the Chinese said, you know, we're ready to disclose when you go first. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we know what's there, but, you know, you, until you've lived in China like I have, I mean, I've lived in China and worked in China 14 years now, you know, you, 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 you've got to understand how the, how the levels of control are structured, you know, from government to secret service to local governor to local council, to local commissioner, to even if you have a factory in China, you've got to have what's called a, a government representative. Well, he's also a spy, you know? Yeah. So everything is controlled. You know, you can't just go around saying and, and, and meeting and investigating things just as you wish. It's not that easy. Interesting, yeah. You know, that's why we have you here on the show to try and explore this world of Chinese and Hong Kong ufology because it's completely foreign to uh, to the American listeners and I'm sure to a lot of the European listeners that we have. It's foreign, but, you know, the way things are going, I've just been watching the the, the intensity, not the frequency, with everything going on. I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm extremely 2012 orientated as such in, in the sense that people believe it. But if, if you do look as we're heading towards, let's say, the future, the... I'm not talking about the frequency of earthquakes and the frequency of things happening. I'm talking about the intensity, yeah. the intensity of everything that's happening. Even I look at myself, the intensity of the way I'm shifting mentally, the intensity of the way the UFO scene here is shifting, the intensity of the amount of sightings we're seeing over the sky, not only here, but as you say, correctly say, in Stevensville. In North London, I'm hearing now, in, uh, over Barnet's, the intensity of sightings. The intensity of sightings in almost every country in the world. Australia's just been going through a flap. The intensity, not the frequency, of the earthquakes. 
the intensity of since 2003 with the, with the tsunami, there's an incredible increase of intensity. Now, if you look at the financial crisis in the States, you know, I look at that as, again, with intensity. You know, everything is becoming intense. Now, if America goes down the pan uh, because of all this and, you know, the, the, the states start to uh, decide, well, you know, I'm not going to go down the ship and maybe I'm better, of, you know, going on my own. You know, I'm, I'm Texas, for example. Yeah. I'd rather be on my own. I, I can survive. I don't need them. I've got a bit of oil and, you know, we're industrious people or whatever. This could happen. Now, if, if we start to see this kind of breakdown of, of, of let's say, of world order, you know, we might start seeing a breakdown of, you know, who's allowed in and out of space, who can say what they want to say. You might start to find that the intensity becomes even stronger. It might be, Americans might get themselves in, in another war and be distracted again. And, you know, slowly the truth will percolate out. I mean, they're talking now about October the 14th of being a day where there's this predicted, this Australian channeler is predicting some kind of a, a flight of a, of, a, of a mothership called the Alabama that will, will, will show itself and will actually stop over the States for a few hours to be photographed. True or not, we don't know. We'll wait and see. We're all waiting uh, very patiently, but uh, there's a lot of talk about it. You know, we, we, we're seeing more intense events going on every single week. And just sitting here, you know, as part of the Exopolitics World Network, you know, Stephen Bassett's crowd and Dr. Silas crowd, reading everything that I see coming through my BlackBerry almost every 10 minutes, there's an incredible amount of change going on in the world. People are going to wake up, and when they do wake up, and, you know, I'm surprised that the American people have not woken up at the moment with this financial crisis, but they better wake up. They're going to be starting to ask a lot of questions, and they're going to be starting to blame a lot of people for sort of keeping the hood over their heads. And the Chinese, the Hong Kong people over here, are also becoming very, very aware of everything that's going on, you know, more and more and more, more and more aware see it all the time, every time I talk to them, asking more and more questions, and they're starting to notice more and more uh, um, intense events around the world, and they keep asking me, and they, a lot of them are doing a lot of research on their own, which is something they weren't doing. I've started the largest online exopolitical library. It's, it's up to now 58 books on my website, free online books on, on the extraterrestrial events, exopolitics, going back to the Space Brothers you know, the George Adamski and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'll be adding at the rate of 10 to 12 books a month, so we'll get up to a few hundred books uh, in no time, that's for sure. Are these in English or in, in the... All in, all in English, all in English. But you see, you know, we've got people here also going to start now to translate some of the stuff. Yeah. But there's a lot of English-speaking people, and, you know, Chinese people, if one speaks English, they'll read it and they'll explain it to the other. Yeah. So, you know, this is a tremendous initiative to give them you know, the full story. I also have sort of video clips and, and uh, you know, documentaries. I give them documentaries on my website as well and the videos. And people are watching. They're watching. And they, they're waking up. And this, this is basically what I, I believe my whole encounter was at the age of nine years old with this being. It was all about learning and heading towards an awakened humanity. And this is, this is exactly what the supposed 2012 is all about. We have this awakened humanity where people will suddenly realize, you know, we have a planet. Uh, there's only 300 million Americans. There's 1.2 billion Chinese. Well, who speaks for the planet? Certainly, if it was based on numbers, it's not the Americans. The fact of the matter is, you know, we have to find a planetary voice. This is something very, very important. This is something I'm trying to teach people. Who represents the planet? At the end of the day, we have to take everybody into account. 
We have to take dolphins. We have to take whales. I mean, we're seeing this already with Greenpeace, Save the Whale. It's all happening by itself. It's happening organically. It's like Gaia is prodding everybody into position. Yeah. So intensity is there, change is there, and I think I'm in the right place at the right time. All right, now let's talk about another pillar of the UFO phenomenon, another uh, influence on the UFO issue, and that's the media. What's the media response to UFOs over there in Hong Kong? Media response, well, first of all, the media is very disjointed, unfortunately. Um, when certain events happened here, the English newspapers came on and, boom, they came out with the story immediately, no problem. Some Some newspapers are a little wary, they will sort of hold back and ask the government if it's okay, and if the government's not sure, then they go to the higher powers to be across the border, and if the higher powers to be across the border feel that something might call, cause social instability, then, you know, it, it, it certainly won't be shown. Make no mistake, if the, if, the peop, if the Hong Kong government thinks that the mainland would disapprove of something in the newspaper, they won't put it in, I can tell you right now. Yeah. But some, it's because it's so disjointed, like, for example, magazines, free hand-up magazines at the, at the underground train station, you know, you, you couldn't put a block, like in America, where you could block everybody in one shot. It would be very, very hard here to block all the news all together at the same time. Because people think here about the checkbook, I must sell papers, I can't stop it. I must sell, I must sell, you know? Yeah. But would you say the the media response is largely positive? Here in America, it's getting better, but for years and years and years, it's been mostly negative and, and sort of uh, yeah. putting down the UFO phenomenon and trying to make it, you know, yeah. uh, discredit it. What's, what's the stance, I guess you could say, on, on the UFOs out there? Um, here, it's, you know, when there's something in the sky and it'll be on the news, you'll see it, and they'll say, you know, it, it, it's claimed to be a flying saucer. But they're not ridiculing. They just won't say what it is or what it isn't. So there's no problem. Yeah, you'll see it. They won't. They won't hide it. I mean, I've just been telling about the university, but when it comes to, you know, something very, very much aligned along the political lines, because if you go to university, that's political. So these are the people of the future. You know, and student movements are strong, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's no problem. There's no real censorship as such. As I say, the Hong Kong Observatory guy stands up and he says, "Yeah, you know, we had something the size of six football fields fly over the Wapu Estate. You can be sure there's no problem here." None of that at all. And usually here on the media also, uh, if, if they're giving fair time to UFOs, then they usually give a pretty good amount or more time to uh, skeptics and, and debunkers. Is there a fair share of that sort of uh, scene? No, we don't, we, don't, we don't really have debunkers. I mean, the, the worst debunker that I ever had was just being interviewed on, on the local English radio station by an English interviewer, and he wasn't debunking, which is giving me a hard time to get to the truth. No. You don't have debunking. You know, it just isn't that culture here, you know. Mm. I mean, pe people would very much like everything to be true. You know, everybody wants it to be true. Everybody wants to see it. And everybody wants to know more about it. Yeah. So there's just no, you know, you're living in a very, 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 con America is a very, very, very contained, controlled, you know, suppressed society as far as the media is concerned. You know, I mean, you know the whole story about when you start to go up the ladder where you end up. But here is different, you know. But since the takeover in 1997, a couple of the newspapers are owned by mainland China. And it is something in the back of journalists' minds whether, you know, you might find that certain things will not be maybe published because they might be too political. But to date, 
day publishing when there's a sighting and enough people see it, it goes into the newspaper. Interesting. Okay. And now you're saying that more people are awakening where you are. What's the perspective of, uh, and you also touched on how in the past uh, no one would report UFO sightings because of the cultural situation yeah. over there. What, what would you say the perspective is of everyday people with regards to UFOs in Hong Kong? Well, the, the perspective, it's very hard for me to know the perspective of everyday people because of the language barrier, but working to the UFO club and from what I see, um, people, I mean, obviously there's a lot of people seeing things not reporting it as it is anywhere in the world. But what's happening now, this, there is this theme that has developed in Hong Kong now since we've really been pushing exopolitics and, and ufology out into the media and the people and doing lectures and, and especially the documentary that we, we did here. Uh, you know, there is the theme. And as I say, when a jogger goes out and he's jogging and he sees something in the sky, um, he has his, his cell phone camera, he takes a picture of it and he sends it in. So, you know, the theme is people are realizing, you know, that they, Somebody once said to me, wow, you know, we're so thankful now we can talk about it. We've got somebody to talk about it with. You know, we see things. We, we want everybody to know. Um, in, in the past, they wouldn't do that. They'd just be, be too embarrassed, you know, sort of lose face. But yes, no, it's, it's, it's definitely a growing thing. I can't give you statistics or numbers because, you know, you're talking about, you know, six million people. Yeah. And many of whom are just, I, I would never have any contact with and, 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 and probably those people may never... Um, you know, ever, ever, even, even hear about the UFO club either, you know? Yeah. Just a different sort of social category. As I said, your website, exopoliticshongkong.com, and you've kind of touched on um, some of what you're all about, and, and, uh, but I guess let's extrapolate more on that. What, what do you see as the role of exopolitics in Hong Kong? Well, there's, there's a few roles. I think, I think one of the roles, which is the hardest, and it's the one that I'm most keen to, 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 to get involved with, is to let people understand the political history surrounding exopolitics, surrounding the UFO phenomena. You know, let people understand everything that happened, let's say from, let's pick a time from, from Roswell and take it through to Eisenhower's alleged meetings with extraterrestrials and making those agreements, and then the counterintelligence program against the uh, contactees, you know, the space people, your Damskis, Howard Menger, George Van Tassel, um, taking it uh, further on to Billy Myers and the Pleiadians. Basically, people have got to understand uh, the, the key point to the extraterrestrial political issue is exactly what Eisenhower warned the world, warned the world about in his farewell speech to the nation about the growing strength and perhaps that the military-industrial complex was going to be, you know, um, becoming out of control, would take over things, and the military-industrial complex really by default is sort of Sort of the military, the military themselves, and they were the subcontractors, according to Corso, right? Corso got all the technology out of the crash craft at Roswell, gave it to the military subcontractors. We've got image intensifiers, we've got Kevlar, we've got fiber optics, we've got everything out of that. And um, the military-industrial complex today is a huge, huge machine that's apparently drawing 1.7 trillion every year in, in, in sort of money from Congress without proper oversight, you know? Yeah used in, in, in black budgets. Now, it's pretty obvious to me that if you've got such a machine, the machine needs to eat. And uh, it's controlling all the geopolitics all around the world. And it has to create wars or it has to create problems in different parts of the world so that it can it can feed itself, make make weapons and um, sell weapons, uh, etc. 
and I, I view the whole uh, timeline from the time of Roswell right up to the up to today, really, up to today, mm -hmm. the whole the whole history of the military industrial complex, I think, is the key to everything. It's the key to being able to build nuclear reactors. It's the key to be able to have, you know, um, a space program, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, as I explained to you, it's 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 controlling the media. It's controlling. We're literally shut into the 60-year block of silence that's impeded our spirituality, our spiritual growth, our spiritual evolution. Now, this is where I come back to this awakened humanity. How, you know, what am I trying to do here, exopolitics in Hong Kong? I'm trying to let people understand the history. If they learn the history, they understand the history, then everything else will make sense. You can't just sort of walk in and start talking about, you know, I want you to awaken, unless you tell them what they've got to awaken to, unless you tell them what the past was. And then after that you've taught them that, you've then got to go back to the galactic, the galactic history. And then you've got to start going back to our genetics. And you've got to go to understand what the motivations of all the extraterrestrials are. Today, we call the military-industrial complex the military-industrial-extraterrestrial complex because we know various extraterrestrial races have been here. Some have, been, have made agreements with the government. We know that there are extraterrestrial joint military American extraterrestrial bases. And we also know about the many spiritual extraterrestrials that came here and said, look, you know, your technological sciences are too far ahead of your social and your spiritual sciences. You've got a problem. You're going to have a problem. You know, the greed is, is going to kill everything. And if you're not careful, your technology will kill everybody as well. Now, you just look at your, your, the, the, the big problems in Wall Street today. It's all about greed. It's about making money out of, out of nothing, you know, and, and just leveraging and leveraging and leveraging and selling greed to everybody else. So, you know, you, you, you can see these are all the lessons that, that people are going to be learning. And we should have been listening to these space brothers when they were giving us the message at the time, how important the spirituality is over technology. We're not ready for technology. Yeah. You kind of intimated that you try to stay out of China because of the exopolitics thing and the politics and the kind of little, uh, you might tweak the wrong people. And, and that was sort of one of the questions I have here in the notes. Isn't it, isn't it kind of... Is it worrisome? Are you worried at all about, about stepping on the wrong toes as far as uh, doing exopolitics in Hong Kong and maybe agitating the Chinese government with uh, some of the exopolitical stuff? Because from my perspective and here in America, a lot of the exopolitical work is sort of aimed at strong-arming the government into releasing UFO information. So, I mean, are you a little... How, how do you feel about that, and, and yeah. uh, do you ever worry that, you know, one day you're just going to get picked up and no one will hear from you again because you're, you're shaking the tree too much? Uh, well, okay, it's a bit different between, you know, Hong Kong, China, and America. First of all, the Americans have got everything locked up in, in, um, in Philip Corso's old filing cabinet. It's all in there. Um, whatever's in, in China and China's filing cabinet would not be as, as interesting as what's in, you know, Corso's cabinet. Uh, having said that, am I am I concerned? Well, I'm not. I'm not concerned. I have absolutely no fear in Hong Kong at all. I've, I've faced, you know, many many situations out here in Hong Kong. I don't care. Um, I don't know if I did mention this to you, but I'm extremely ADHD, which I put down, which I put down in my case to the um, the intrusive abduction that I had, and um, I, I don't have fear of consequence in Hong Kong, but I do have common sense. And what that common sense tells me, yes, do what you want in Hong Kong, but when you go to China, don't do, don't do what you want in China. But I have another belief. I believe that I can get to China by actually in time, by going to the Chinese authorities that are based in Hong Kong 
sitting to them, talking to them, because everything in China is about faith and it's about rapport and relationships. And I will be, I will be developing relationships with the Chinese authorities here in Hong Kong. And I'll put all my cards on the table and I'll explain to them I'm very, very pro-China. I'm not anti-China. Okay, I'm very, very pro-China. You know, we have energy problems in the world. I've got this technology that I've that I've brought out here that you can, you know, you can basically get energy from water. I guess they know about it already. I guess they've even got better systems themselves. But you see, everything is so compartmentalized. The next one guy will not know about what the next guy's got. Never mind. Yeah. Um, I will sit down with these people. I will tell them that I want to do this this uh, huge UFO conference in Hong Kong. I would like their help? Could they perhaps send their, their astronaut? Could they perhaps send one of their contactees? Could they do something? Uh, this is the way to do it. With China, you have to build bridges, not not destroy relationships. If you go in there and you start telling them, I'm the big I am, politics, politics, you're going to find yourself, as you say, you know, perhaps not coming back home. Yeah. And um, I really would not want to do that because I'm not having a go with China. I think China is the perfect partner to show them that we have some sensible people here that are not pro anybody, you know. I'm not, I'm not pro America. I'm not pro anybody. I'm, I'm pro the earth. I'm, 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 I'm a citizen of earth. I don't regard myself as a national of any particular country. And you know, I'll, I'll, I'll really put that on the table to them and say, come, you know, let's, let's, let's get things moving. You'll see, we're going to be bringing people over from all over the world to come and talk out here. And that, I think that's the best way to, to tackle this. Now, have you had any interaction with the Chinese government at all, whether they're in China or the Chinese officials who are in Hong Kong? Have you had any interaction with them regarding UFO had, stuff? Not, not, not personally, but through an intermediary. That's can, the way you have to do it. Yeah. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that, or was well, that still yeah, developing? Basically, somebody's talking, and uh, you know, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to look at it from that person's perspective. He's got to go and think, well, who's sitting on him? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and you've got to let that all sort of percolate up, up the levels. You know, right, right, right through the top of it, if it gets to the top. And then later on, maybe we'll probably talk to Professor Sun Shili. You know, he's the so-called figurehead. Um, he's the respectable face of ufology in, in, in China and Beijing. He's, um, he was actually a Spanish interpreter for Chairman Mao. Oh, wow. In the Cult Cultural Revolution. And he's a political umbrella of ufology. He teaches economic in Beijing University. And, um, you know, we'll start We'll, we'll be talking more to him at the top, and we'll be talking to some of the guys here at the bottom. And uh, we'll see how it goes, you know. You said that it's a lot of scientists and stuff uh, looking at the UFO phenomenon in China. Would you say that it's treated with more respect as far as uh, it's okay to look at the subject in China? Because here in America, you know, if you're a mainstream scientist, you know, you're not going to touch uh, UFOs with the 10-foot pole because you're going to lose your tenure or lose, yeah. you know, your job or something. Is it more acceptable in China to look at UFOs if you're, you know, uh, a scientist or someone who's got mainstream credibility? Yes, it is, as long as you don't politicize it. I mean, you can, they, they do, you know, they regard it as, as astronomy and science. It comes under astronomy and science. So they investigate it, but there's nobody going to go and turn around and say, hey, you know, our origins might be extraterrestrial. You know, we now suddenly find, you know, 223 laterally inserted genes in our DNA that shouldn't be there. They don't have the required predecessors on the mitochondrial side. You, you won't get anybody saying that, but you'll certainly get people investigating, um, you know, sightings in the sky, or you'll, you'll get people writing about um, some of the historic um, archaeological artifacts that, are, that, are, that used to exist and have some of them in the way now. And uh, you'll get these scientists attending these various um, UFO clubs all around China, but nobody will 
will step outside of, of tram lines because they all know very well and understand that Sun Shin is at the top and um, you know he has to keep everybody within the required parameters. China is probably protecting two things. One is its social stability, okay, because they're not very keen on religion or anything at all. And second of all, they've got to protect this membership club that they have with America. Yeah. And that, that's just basically the two basic rules out there. For lack of a better term, you think China's in bed with uh, with the U.S. as far as UFOs go? Because I was always sort of under the impression that China acted pretty independent of, of the rest of the world. Nobody can act independent of America. Well, not for long. He, he <laughs> who has, you know, yeah, he, he who has the technology, and, you know, and he who wins the war rewrites the history. Yeah. And, you know, if America's up in space, I mean, God knows what they've got up there. Do you see that one guy, what's his name, uh, Larson or something? He had this special telescope, and he was taking he was taking pictures um, of these stars in the sky, and he put them on, on on the internet. And you just saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these like space stations all over the all over the uh, the night sky. And you know whose are they? Well, uh, if they're anybody's, I would, would imagine they belong to the United States. I'm sure they have all sorts of stuff out there. They control. They have. I'm sure they have arms up there. They have everything up there. So um, they can control everything. You, you can't just walk into space, I can assure you. Yeah. Now, you, you sort of explained that it's sort of private UFO groups that are looking at the subject over there in China. What about the military or the government? Have they ever said anything or done a study or, or you know, uh, released any files like what's kind of happening nowadays? Has anything come out from the government or the military no. in China? No, no, that is locked, just locked away. You couldn't even knock on the door. You, know, you just couldn't. If there's anything, if there's, if there has been a landing or a crash or anything like that, it's locked away, and the only people who know about it will be America. The crash, crash retrievals program, under their management system. So you, you wouldn't get a look in either way. Same way in America, if anything crashed in America, you wouldn't get a look in. You might hear about something, like recently the thing that came down in somewhere near. Um, in Nevada, hmm. and recently, you know, you saw that uh, something crashed in, in Vietnam. They say the first reports are it was a UFO that crashed in Vietnam. It was about four or five months ago, and the next thing is you hear nothing. You can't even find anything out about it. It all comes under the American Crash Retrieval Program. I mean, you've seen the. Uh, uh, I'm sure you've listened to Clifford Stone. Yeah. As I said to you earlier, you know, they they uh, they have teams that go around. They have this manual, this some one manuals. Uh, uh, on how to handle these things. It's freely available. You go to the majesticdocuments.com and you can go and download it. They show you how to pack the things, they talk about the extraterrestrial biological entities. It's all, um, you know, classified stuff, but it's there. It's all leaked out. Interesting. So China doesn't really have a, like a stance at all on UFOs or, or anything like that. They haven't had any major or haven't had any like public statement or anything about the UFO phenomenon? No, no, no public statements as such. They, they will talk about, yes, UFOs, but what does UFO mean? It means unidentified flying objects. Yeah. They don't append the word, that was extraterrestrial. They don't. But there are theories about the Dropa Stones. You can read about, you know. You can read about all this. About this craft that crashed 10,000 years ago, and these stones have inscriptions describing it. They're shaped like the ships, and that kind of thing. And the occupants were quite short and Asiatic-looking, you know. You can read about that on the internet quite freely. You can also read anything that Sun Shili writes because he's sanctioned to write. 
and he talks about he he, he always talks about the famous cases of of the contactees in China. The, the, the two the two most famous cases, the one that I just told you about, with the guy in the plantation mm-hmm. meeting the alien woman and being given message of spirituality, and of course the other famous one is when the the extraterrestrial took the guy on his back and flew him all around the place. So there's, you know, Sun Chili writes about that. He also he also had wrote one article where he says there are extraterrestrials living living amongst us. Now, Dr. Michael Sala wrote a very, very similar paper himself, which is freely available on exopolitics.org, that extraterrestrials live amongst us. So, yeah, there is this kind of hint every now and then, but you cannot, you cannot get past that. You can't get past Professor Sun Shali because past him is the real heavy-handed military. Yeah. You say that Sun, and I, I may butcher this guy's name, so I apologize to you yeah. and him. Sun, yeah. uh, but uh, Sun Shin Lee, you said that he wrote a, uh, a piece that said there are aliens living among us, and, and you also yeah. said that he can't really do anything without getting it approved by the Chinese government. So yeah. can we in turn assume that it, that they approved for him to say that that, that, yeah. that that was the case? Yeah, they give him, they let him write a certain amount, and that's it. They allow him to write certain things, and they, he can't write what he wants. Yeah. He's he's just the umbrella. He's just like the, he's like the conduit. He's the face. Right. So what I'm trying to say though is then, so by osmosis or by uh, you know logic or whatever, we can assume then that since he could write that there are extraterrestrials living among us, then that is actually uh, was okay by the Chinese government for him it to was, say. Yes, it was okay by the Chinese government to say. Interesting. But 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 nothing. You can't get anything else beyond that. That's what one thing China is good at saying. See, in the West, if you give a hint. Of something, we'd say, "Well, tell me more, tell me more, right?" Yeah, it's normal. In China, you get a hint of something, you shut up. <laughs> you, don't go, you don't go past that. That's it, you know. Yeah, that's the way it works. You get a hint and then finished. You know, no why, no ifs or buts. That's it. You know, you just the way it works. Yeah, it's the same in 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 business laws. There, China is very 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 difficult. You know, people come to invest their money in China and, and to set up factories. What, and they go to their lawyers, and their lawyers tell them, don't worry, you do this, everything will be okay. What they don't understand about China, the law is different to everywhere else in the world. You have you have what's called China law, which is the law in the statute book, right? Yeah. Then you also have what's called China policy. Now, you're not, you're not told about China policy. China policy basically means that the judge can be flexible with the law. For example, if a factory is employing 5,000 people and the factory goes bankrupt, China law says you close it down, it's bankrupt, and you sell the assets, right? Yeah. China policy says, no, better to keep the people working. They bankrupt, we'll put seals in all the machines to show that the machines can't be sold. But China policy says that as long as that factory's got orders and it can turn, the creditors cannot touch the machines. Huh. That's China policy. See? Yeah. So it's a very, very complicated system. Okay, now I uh, just want to touch on the media in China. Now we talked about the media in Hong Kong, but I understand the media in China is a little more tightly controlled. Is, is it the same sort of situation with the UFO phenomenon where, you know, like you kind of already touched on this though, that yeah. they're going to report on the UFO phenomenon only as, much, only as much as they think they can get away with pretty much, They'll right? report any sighting, no problem. They'll show it proudly on Shanghai television. You'll see, I've seen so many cases, even whilst I've been in China, you know, just happened to be the right time when over Shanghai, this again, this prism flew over. Another time, sort of like orb flew over. I've actually seen an orb myself in China, and it's 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 filmed and it's quite proudly put on the TV as a UFO, you know, an, an unidentified flying object. 
They don't identify. They don't say, well, it is this or it is that. But people call a people in people's minds the word UFO means flying saucer. Yeah. It means you know its connotation is it's extraterrestrial, and they don't try and hide that. So they don't say, look, it's 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 obviously something from Earth. Yeah, they just leave it out there and sort of uh, let yeah. the people figure it out for themselves. That's, that's correct. That's that's the way it works. And then you sort of touched on disclosure. Uh, a lot of people seem to think that if disclosure, well, there's an ongoing debate about disclosure, I guess you could say, and, and, and there's hope that maybe some other country would open the door first, and it sounds like you're not a big believer in that because a lot of people are pinning their hopes on China to uh, release UFO information first to sort of uh, yeah. tweak America or get ahead of America um, on the UFO front, but you don't think that's a possibility? No, no. You know, uh, disclosure is, is a very, very strange phenomenon. To me, all those people who are educated in exopolitics and, and, and ufology, and I mean educated and heavily educated, and to us, disclosure already happened. It happened in 2001 when Dr. Greer had the disclosure project and he had 450 military witnesses telling you as it is. To me, that's disclosure. Now, to come to somebody like me and tell me that the only time, you know, I can uh, believe that disclosures, disclosures actually happen is when the same damn people who lied to us in the first place tell us, you know, that, that extraterrestrials exist. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not going to listen to the to the TV or they'll, they'll, they'll put a spin on it. They'll put their spin on it. They'll spin what they think is suitable for the people. Now, I don't believe that this government or any government is, is, is actually going to be qualified to handle uh, disclosure in the future. You're going to need citizen diplomacy. You're going to need track two diplomacy riding alongside track one diplomacy. You're going to have to have a citizen's diplomacy in the element uh, that's going to oversee everything, that's going to be um, totally transparent. Because anything that a government does is track one, and anything a government's going to, going to disclose, they're going to put something in it that maybe helps perpetuate their illegal businesses going on within the military-industrial complex. They might put a negative spin on it so they could put weapons in space. They could do what they want. They could do a false flag operation. Yeah, exactly. So I, for me, disclosure was already happened in 2001. And if people are clever enough, wise enough, then they know. And if they don't know, then it's time for them to learn and to awaken. Okay, fair enough. Um now, I just have one last question for you, and it's completely off the beaten path, but I figured that since you're close to China, you might know the answer to this. And that was, uh, it's always been sort of a longstanding rumor here in America that uh, they teach that the moon landing was a hoax in Chinese schools. Is that true? No. It's not true? No. Okay. Then you've debunked a longstanding rumor, so I appreciate that, because it seems no, I've been Chinese, hearing that for Chinese, a long time. No, the Chinese watch with great scientific interest in anything the Americans do in space, and they respect it. And where do you see this whole UFO phenomenon going? I, you kind of intimated that you feel like things are reaching ahead. Is that the way you feel, that the intensity is picking up and that we're headed towards some kind of UFO breakthrough, if you will, for lack of a better term? Well, I, I really do. And, um, you know, when I talk about it, I'm, I'm talking without bringing government into it because to me it's a waste of time. You know, people are going to put a spin on something. Why listen to them? I, I believe more and more people are becoming wise. You take somebody like Stephen Bassett of the Paradigm Research Group, one of the most amazing political activists you can imagine. I mean, they put the the questions uh, to the presidential candidates. Remember Dennis Kucinich, mm-hmm. when he was asked if he ever saw a, a UFO. Um, latest um, initiative from the PRG. They're trying to get everybody to send the facts 
um, you know, if you look at the PRG website, you see they want they want millions of people to send the facts um, to to the government regarding the ET presence on Earth. Um, they want basically everybody to you know force Congress to take testimony from former military agencies. They want uh, to force the government to give disclosure to the people. I think now's the right time to hammer those guys anyway, uh, no matter what happens, uh, no matter what's happening on the periphery. I think you've seen uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell come out. You've seen many, many, many talks by the Right Honourable Paul Hellyer, ex-Canadian ex Minister of Defence. You've seen the Vatican start to sort of soften their stance uh, on the fact that aliens, extraterrestrials, might exist as one of God's creations. There's more and more and more coming out. The alleged meetings of the United Nations on February the 12th regarding the disclosure. I think that at the end of the day, we are reaching a critical mass in terms of our technical, our technical, um, our technology has become far too advanced. We're coming Far, becoming far too dangerous. We be, we're posing a danger to other civilizations because we're able to get into space. And I just wouldn't be surprised if over the next few years the intensity, I come back to this intensity again, the intensity of these aerial sightings of unidentified flying objects will increase. I think there will be more contactee experience. I think more people will come together to form groups, to communicate, to channel, to try and make contact with these beings. Because if we don't do it, you know, many civilizations reach a particular level and then they disappear. Because if the technology goes ahead of the spirituality, they blow themselves up. And we're really at that point now yeah. where we have to awaken and we have to make sure that we make it through into the next decade. Let's hope so, yeah. Well, we we'll need to make it through this year at this point. <laughs> um, and now, what's on the agenda for you, and what's on the agenda for the Hong Kong UFO Club and ExopoliticsHongKong.com? You're talking about the world's largest UFO conference. Now, is that in attendance, or or scope, or what makes it the world's largest, well, and I what's next very, for you? Yes, well, I was very, very surprised to find out when I started to look at all these UFO conferences that we have all around the world, you know. They never, ever seem to exceed six to 800 people, maybe 900 people. Yeah. Which really surprised me. You know, typically they're around two to 300 people. Well, when I do a lecture here, I mean, I just get 300 people with no advertising. So I thought to myself, we've got to try for the end of 2009 to have a platform of free speech out here and to be able to have the world's biggest UFO conference. What that means is, We'd like to get something running into the thousands. Now, the only, the only problem I'm facing now is that if this economic downturn becomes, you know, as severe as many of these people are, are predicting, yeah. you know, obviously you're not going to be able to raise that kind of money that we need. But I have people who, you know, who are encouraging me to go ahead and they say, look, just put the plan on the table and let's, let's see if we can, uh, we can approach some of the big um, oligarchs out here and see if we can get the money to do it. So this is one of the initiatives we'll be, we'll be doing our best to do. You said you have so many more people who attend your lectures over there than, than we're seeing here in America and stuff like that. Do you think that's just because the population is so much bigger over there in Hong Kong in such a contained area or that the uh, interest is so much bigger? Uh, the, the, the reason, I think, is very sad. The reason is very sad. Because when you have a UFO conference, let's say, in, in one city in America, Yeah. You only get like 300 people in a city, you know, when there's, there's hundreds of thousands of people. The, 
problem, the difference between the people here and the people in America and, and parts of the West, their minds are not as polluted. They've not grown up being bombarded by indoctrination through the television, through the schools, through the radio. Their minds are pure. You know, they have open minds. Whereas in America and in the West, the first thing most people say, oh, it's a lot of rubbish. Oh, it's, it, it, they don't exist. How come? If it was true, you, you, they would say so. Why would the government hide such a thing? What is the reason? Why haven't they landed on the White, White House lawn? You see? Yeah. The conditioning in America is so intense that the poor people themselves are now in the deepest, worst, most horrific financial predicament. And, it's, and they're in it because they have been brainwashed to be in it. They've been sold packages of tins of fresh air, and they pay for it. Exactly. exactly what's happened. Yeah. Whereas out here, it doesn't happen. Well, Neil, it's been great to have you on the show. You've given us some tremendous insight into the UFO scene over there in Hong Kong and China. Um, it's an invaluable perspective for someone like me and, and for our American listeners and for our European listeners. As you said, the language barrier with uh, the Asian countries is so tremendous that it's just immensely difficult to find out any information really about the UFO phenomenon and UFO studies over there in the Pacific. So to get your perspective and to get your insight on what's going on over there has just been awesome. Uh, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. Wish you the best of luck with your massive conference that you're trying to put together. And folks can, of course, find out more information from you at www.exopoliticshongkong.com. Uh, once again, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, and hopefully we can stay in touch and you can be back on in the future to discuss more about what's going on with ufology over there in Hong Kong and China. Thanks, Timmy. Welcome anytime. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 4. Big, big, super huge thanks to Neil Gould for coming on the show. If you want to find out more on Neil Gould, simply go to his website, www.exopoliticshongkong.com. All one word, exopoliticshongkong.com. Check it out. Before we dive into BOA Audio listener feedback, I'm going to give you a little teaser here on something exciting that's coming up for BOA Audio in about two weeks. As the longtime listeners of the program know, the last episode before Christmas is always and always shall be the BOA Audio Holiday Special with Stanton Friedman. It's going to be a barn burner. I already set up the interview. It's already scheduled and I'm going to be talking to Stan in about two weeks. The exciting part is, since this is the fourth annual BOA Audio Holiday Special, I want to try something a little different, but I don't want to give it all away right now. Next week, I will tell you all about this, but in short, it is an exciting opportunity for BOA Audio listeners who happen to be members of the USV.com to be a part of the fourth annual Holiday Special. How can you be a part of it? That's simple. Go to the USV.com. If you're not a member, join. It's free. Don't worry about that. And then you want to go to the section known as The Vault. That'll have all the information on this exciting opportunity for this year's holiday special. Next week, I'll just spill the beans and let you know what it is. But for now, I'll give you a teaser. Try and drive some folks to the forum who've been thinking about it but haven't done so. Check out the forum. Check out The Vault. That'll have all the information in there. Next, of course, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. I really enjoyed the way we did things last week, covering a number of different emails, so we're going to try that again here at the end of the program for episode 406. 
the emails this week run the gamut from amusing to mysterious to heartwarming. So we'll kick it off first with the amusing, and that is from Cheryl. No hometown listed. Here's what Cheryl has to say. Just wanted to let you know that you're doing a great job. Appreciate these interviews. But your description of the George Knapp interview has an oops. You actually have the Charles Upton description duplicated there and nothing about George. She was talking about the Season 4 archive page, which, embarrassingly enough, did have the incorrect information on there. Cheryl, kudos to you for catching that mistake at BOA. It has since been corrected. The Season 4 archive page is now correctly updated. And I wrote Cheryl back, thanking her profusely for pointing out this embarrassing error and noting that we'd thank her here at the end of this week's episode. So thank you, Cheryl, for catching that mistake. You just might be our listener of the week. The next email comes from Norm, and this one is the mysterious one. So all the Father Dowlings and Angela Lansbury's in the audience, put on your thinking caps. Hello, I was wondering who and what is the name of the bumper music played at the beginning of Richard Dolan, Part 2 of 2, in Season 1. Thanks, Norm. The mysterious part is, for the life of me, I have no idea what I used for the bumper music in that episode. I've gone back and listened to the beginning of the show there. God's honest truth, I'm kind of scared, but I have no idea what I used for that bumper music. It sounds a little Pink Floydish, but there's no words or anything, uh, and it's some kind of instrumental number that I have no clue where it came from. So we'll turn it over here to the listeners of BOA Audio. Check out the bumper music played at the beginning of Richard Dolan Part 2 of 2 in Season 1. Help me out, help Norm out, and help us crack this case of the mystery music. Yet one more reason why we need to put together the Bumper Music Master List for BOA Audio, something I'll get to at some point in the future, I swear, maybe after we crack this Bumper Music mystery case. And finally, we wrap it up with a heartwarming email from Anna in Tennessee. Here's what she has to say. I have a health issue keeping me in bed right now. What a blessing to find your program. I appreciate how you let your excellent guests, especially Jim Mars, do most of the talking. This is a rare gift among talk show hosts these days. Please continue your great work and know that your program means so very much to me. P.S. I enjoy your program on hoaxes and ghosts, too. Have you heard of Dr. Elizabeth Loftus? She is an expert on memory and how fallible our memories can be. I think you would find her to be an intriguing guest. There you go. That was from Anna in Tennessee. First off, Anna, thank you so much for writing to us. I wish you the very best. I hope your health issues clear up and you can get up and running and get out there in the world. But know for now that BOA Audio will be right there by your side throughout your health issue, and hopefully you'll get through this in no time fast. Regarding Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, I'll put her on the list here for future BOA Audio guests. I'll check out her stuff and see if we can pin her down at some point in the future on the program. Definitely sounds like somebody who would be very interesting. I'm not sure if she's a skeptic, a debunker, or someone within the world of Esoterica who's technically, you know, quote-unquote, on our side. But either way, it sounds like a fascinating episode, definitely one I'll look into. So there you have it. Thanks again for writing in. Anna in Tennessee, Norm, and Cheryl, they are our BOA Audio listener feedback contributions this week. If you'd like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, here's how you go about doing it. For starters, make your email pithy, and we'll definitely get you in at the end. I can't really read six paragraphs from somebody, even though I appreciate the feedback, and I read it, and I try to respond to those lengthy emails to read them at the end of the program would be kind of a nightmare, and let's all be honest, nobody wants to hear me talk that long. So make your contributions pithy and send them here, boaaudio at hotmail.com. 
or go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. That'll give you all the necessary information. And finally, you can always join up at the free BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com, or just click the forum button at BOA to get to the US of E. As we noted at the beginning, we got an exciting opportunity for participation in the fourth annual holiday special with Stanton Friedman. You want to check that out at the vault section of the US of E as we try to add a little twist to our holiday tidings with the father of modern day ufology. Those are the three ways to get in touch with me, the email, the contact section, or the forum. Any of those methods will get your correspondence into the mailbag for future editions of VOA Audio listener feedback. Next up is, as always, the thanks portion of the show. Let's run down the list of the outstanding BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, and Richard Thomas from Wales. I could run down the list of their contributions over the last few weeks, but you would just be agog by the time I finished. You definitely want to check out their columns at Been All of America, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. Always top-notch material, and we got a couple of new columnists on deck that I'm working into the system right now. So hopefully by the time 2009 rolls around, we'll have two more names here at the end of the program to list for you and give kudos to. If you're only listening to Been All of America Audio and you're not reading the columns at BOA, you're only getting half the story. BinAllOfAmerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, of America.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Ho, 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 it is the holiday season, and you know what comes next in the program. I ask you for donations. Think of me as the guy at the mall with the bell and the bucket, because I'm asking you to make a little donation to Banal of America and help us keep the bills down. We're living through a financial crisis here across the board. Everybody understands that. I understand it as well as anyone. So I'm not asking you folks that are just scraping by to give donations. But to the people that think they can afford it, please make a donation to the BOA franchise to help keep the website and the audio program up and running and freely available to all of our great listeners and readers the world over. Next week on the program, it is an episode well over two years in the making Somebody I've been trying to track down over the course of the last two seasons of BOA Audio, and I finally got a hold of him a few weeks back. Folks who've been listening to the program for the last year or so will remember how I've been sort of intrigued by these lost mysteries of esoterica, and next week we are going to dive in in a very big way to one of those lost paranormal mysteries. It's going to be our first two-part episode of Season 4. We're heading into previously uncharted waters on our program and an area of mystery once huge in esoterica but now relegated to the peripheral, the Bermuda Triangle. Our guest is going to be Gian Kassar, author of the fantastic book Into the Bermuda Triangle, a tome which has reinvigorated the Triangle mystery. In part one of our interview, we're going to discuss the history of the Triangle, both as a phenomenon and as an enigma of public interest. We're going to discuss the most famous and infamous Triangle cases, like the Carol A. Daring, Flight 19, Christopher Columbus's Triangle Experiences, The Ellen Austin Story, The Tale of the USS Cyclops, and many, many others. In Part 1, we're also going to cover the government's take on the Triangle, Gian's arguments against the various Triangle debunkers, and disappearance flaps in the Triangle, including the infamous December Hex. 
Trust me, my friends, this is going to be a can't-miss double episode of BOA Audio. It is richly detailed, unearthing one of Esoterica's lost mysteries, the Bermuda Triangle. That's next week, Gian Kassar, part one of two, on BOA Audio, season four. You don't want to miss it. And on that note, we wrap it up here for the week. Big, big thanks, of course, to Neil Gould for coming on the show, and our friend Damian Green in Hong Kong for helping us put it all together. Until next time, this is Tim Vanall, thanking you for listening and signing off.